Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast. And with me today, I have my new friend, Roy. Roy, welcome to Equipping you in, the Equipping You in Grace podcast. Oh, thanks, Dave. Looking forward to chatting with you. Welcome, brother. Welcome. Me too. Can you uh, just tell us about your life, your marriage, your ministry, some of the current things that you're working on writing-wise or ministry-wise, brother? Sure. Um, well, currently, I live in Guelph, Ontario, which is in uh, southern Ontario, about an hour west of Toronto city of about 135,000 people. Um, I was born in Perth, Ontario, a little town of 6,000 people in eastern Ontario, about an hour west of Ottawa, the capital. And after high school, I attended Queen's University, uh, did a double major in uh, chemistry and psychology. Then I went to the University of Guelph and studied uh, biomedical toxicology. Uh, for the last 25 years of my career, I was a drug development scientist for Johnson & Johnson, and uh, that's what brought me to Guelph when they were building the facility here back in 1980. A number of years ago, Johnson & Johnson purchased Pfizer Consumer Healthcare in Canada, and so they were amalgamating the businesses. And so any of us that were 55 or older and had 25 or more years with the company were offered an early retirement package. So, so I took that package. For the first couple of years, I was involved in volunteer work, but, but I was restless. Uh, as a child growing up, I wanted to be a scientist. Hmm. I always knew what I wanted to be. And I remember my last day of work. I walked out the driveway of the company I had walked in 25 years in a row. I had a great career. And I stopped halfway to my car and I went, it's over. Hmm. Now what? Uh, I had such a feeling of despondency because it had consumed my whole life. I wanted to be a scientist from a kid. I had a great career, developed some great products in, in my lifetime. But then it was over. Um, so the volunteer work uh, kept me occupied, but I was restless. And my dear wife, Margaret, recognized that. And she said, you know, you love to teach and you love to learn. And we have two Bible colleges close by. Why don't you take some courses? So I went to Heritage Seminary, which is about five minutes from my house one day. And I sat in on classes and I came home and said, I'm going to do a master's in theology. <laughs> she said, oh, that's a few courses. <laughs> uh, so I did that. Um, I went back to school, did my master's, and uh, wives know us well, do they not? Because uh, about uh, three days after I graduated with my master's, we were having dinner, and she said to me, six months. And I said, six months? Six months what? She said, I give you six months until you're into something else. And I, I said, no, no. This was hard. After being out of school 40 years and going back, this was tough. Well, two days later, I came back and said, I'm going to do a doctorate in church history. Uh, and so I completed that doctorate in church history uh, last December. Uh, we have four children, three boys and a girl. Three boys live within an hour of us. Uh, but my daughter, daughter's always close to her father's heart. Uh, she's the farthest away and lives in British Columbia. She's a special education teacher at a Christian school there. My current ministry, um, I act as 
the Executive Research Assistant at the Canadian Office of the Andrew Fuller Centre for Baptist Studies under uh, Dr. Michael Haken. Uh, Dr. Haken is a professor of church history at Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville. And so I proof and edit works that are going for publication and interface with the publisher on those. And then uh, currently I'm uh, writing and editing a book commemorating the 400th anniversary of the Pilgrims landing in Plymouth, Massachusetts, which was in October of 1620. So lots of things on the go. Wow, you, you definitely uh, definitely stay busy. You got a second career there already. <laughs> so you're definitely not bored now. So that's awesome. That's great. <laughs> well, can you uh, tell us a little bit about this book, uh, Jonathan Edwards and the Stockbridge, Mohican Indians, his mission and his sermons, why he wrote it and how you hope it'll be received? Sure. Uh, well, while doing my master's and uh, studying church history, uh, I was fortunate to have Dr. Haken as my professor of church history. Uh, Dr. Haken is world-renowned. He's a fellow of the Royal Historical Society and has written probably 50 or 60 books on, on church history. But as a teacher, he's not a lecturer. He's a storyteller. So he brings the people to life before you, and it just makes you want to learn more, learn more. Well, I was particularly struck by the deep spirituality of Jonathan Edwards, and I was intrigued by his mission to the Mohicans in Stockbridge. Like most people, my knowledge of the Mohicans was, oh yeah, the Mohicans, James Fenimore Cooper, last of the Mohicans. That, that was the limit of my knowledge of the Mohicans. Well, Edward was preaching twice each Sunday uh, in Stockbridge when he was there, once to the English in English, and then once to the Mohicans through an interpreter. And so I wondered, how was his content delivery different between those sermons? Did he change his content to the Mohicans? And so I was really kind of intrigued by that. And Dr. Hagan also mentioned that only a couple of Edward's Indian sermons had ever been published. So once I embarked on my doctorate, I knew what I wanted to do. Hmm. Um, I contacted Dr. Ken Minkema at the Jonathan Edwards Center at Yale, where all Edwards' papers and sermons are housed. And I asked him, I said, do you have any of Edwards' Mohican sermons that have not been published yet? And he said, just about 200 of them. <laughs> and to date, only three or four have ever seen the light of day since he preached them in the 1750s. So if you take this project on, you're doing us a favor. So, <laughs> um, so what I did, I chose... Uh, sermons from the beginning of his ministry to them, some that were in the middle of its tenure, which was during the French and Indian Wars, a very difficult period of time, a very threatening time, 1755-1756. And then I looked at his two farewell sermons from January 1758, which he preached a week apart. And so I looked at the style and the content and the delivery and how that was different from what he would have preached to the English. Regarding how I hope it'll be received, well, I very purposely wrote in a style that would appeal to somebody who wants to read a good story. They want to know about history. They want to know the history of the native people. But then also it would appeal to the academic who wants to get a feel for the mind of Edwards and uh, what he was like when he was in Stockbridge after his ministry in Northampton. That's great, brother. Really good. Really good can you can you tell us some about why jonathan edwards wanted to engage the mohican indians and his goal for doing so sure well some scholars indicated that after edwards dismissal from the northampton pulpit he went to the mohicans in stockbridge uh, to get away from the controversy to kind of a quiet place where he could concentrate on his theological writing uh, samuel hopkins a contemporary who wrote edwards memoir seems to indicate that he said uh, in his memoirs that god gave edwards a quiet retreat in stockbridge 
Well, that was far from the truth, actually. Uh, Edwards had been offered pulpits in Scotland and in New York after Northampton, but he chose to go to Stockbridge. Uh, some have also indicated that he just preached rehashed sermons from Northampton while he was there. But uh, while he did preach some previous Northampton sermons to the English, for the most part, he presented very unique material aimed specifically at the Indians. Uh, and while it's true that Edwards produced his best theological works while he was there, Evidence shows that Edwards went to the Mohicans with a missionary heart and that he had been committed to them for some time. His grandfather Solomon Stoddard had preached a sermon asking if God was not angry with the English for not having more actively evangelized the Native Americans. And Stoddard reminded the people that it was part of the royal charter that they evangelized, evangelized the Native Americans. Well, Edwards had actually served as a trustee for the boarding school that was uh, in Stockbridge the boarding school for the native boys from 1743 to 1747, which was prior to him ever going to Stockbridge. And it was also, he was also involved in fundraising for the mission. Additionally, David Brainer, who had been a missionary to the Indians, spent his final days in Edward's home before he died of tuberculosis. Edward subsequently wrote Brainer's biography. Brainer died in October 1747. So without doubt, they would have discussed Brainerd's ministry to the Indians. And then when Edwards went to Stockbridge in 1751, he was totally committed to the welfare and evangelizing of the Indians. One evidence of that is that unlike Sargent, who built, who, Sargent was uh, the minister to the Mohicans before uh, Edwards and was the first missionary to go to them, Edward, uh, Sargent built his home on Prospect Hill overlooking the town, but Edwards built his home right on the main street among the Indians. And indeed, he took some of the Indians into his home from time to time. Hmm. Um, well, before Edwards arrived, the English were already scheming and swindling the Indians out of their land. But while there, Edwards carried on a relentless letter-writing campaign in an effort to protect the Indians' rights. The records show that while he was there from 1751 to 1758, there were only five recorded land transactions involving Mohican property. However, in the 10 years following Edwards' move from Stockbridge, there were 87 land transfers. So history shows that he truly cared for the Indians. He took, as I mentioned, he took some of them into his home. He cared for them during the French and Indian War. A stockade was built around his house. Soldiers were there. Um, so there's no doubt that Edwards was totally committed to the ministry to the to the Indians. But it makes a question. Was Edwards' ministry effective to them? Uh, his predecessor, John Sargent, kept meticulous records. So we know how, how many conversions, how many baptisms there were, uh, how many marriages, how many deaths, things like that. But not so Edwards. Uh, we don't have any written records from the church of that time. But in doing my research, in chatting with one of the tribal members, Mark Shaw, who's actually a newspaper editor in uh, St. Louis, he said to me very emphatically, if it were not for the ministry of Jonathan Edwards to my ancestors, my grandmother, my mother, and I would not be Christians today. So Edwards' ministry to the Mohicans lives right on to this day, without question. Hmm. That's, a, that's a wonderful testimony, you know, to 
to uh, you know him Edwards being committed you know to a to a people even despite having other opportunities that's that's a wonderful legacy and praise praise God for his work among the Mohicans so that's that's really wonderful can you uh, please tell us about the Stockridge Bible and what role it played in Edwards' mission to the Mohican Indians oh that's a wonderful story I'm glad you asked that <laughs> well the first missionary to the Mohicans at Stockridge as I mentioned was John Sargent uh, who came when the mission of the town of Stockbridge was first established in 1734-1735. It was the first planned community in America where they wanted to integrate English families with Indian families. And so four English families came from uh, the Northampton area and moved into the Stockbridge area with the Indians. So in 1744, Sargent sent an appeal to um, for funding to England. Um, and this appeal went to Thomas Coram. And Coram was a retired sea captain. He was very well connected with the royal family. So the appeal for funds went through him to a, a Thomas Atwell. It's pronounced Askoff, A-Y-F-C-O-U-G-N. But the British pronounce it Askew, of course, as they want to change the pronunciation of many words. So it went to Thomas Askew, who just happened to be a personal chaplain to Frederick, who was the Prince of Wales. But the prince was the very first to donate money to the cause for the uh, to the school. But Askew wanted to give something more tangible, so he sent a two-volume leather-bound Bible that had been printed by the King's Printer in 1717. Um, and I'd like to just read to you, if I can, the uh, inscription was inside the Bible, because it figures very prominently in what happens to the future of the Bible. So it says this, this, with another volume containing the Holy Bible, is the pious gift of the Reverend Dr. Francis Askew, clerk of the closet to His Royal Highness Frederick Prince of Wales, to the use of the Congregation of Indians at or near Cusatonic, in a vast wilderness part of New England, who are at present in the voluntary care and instruction of the learned and religious Mr. John Sargent, and is to remain the use of the successors of those Indians from generation to generation as a testimony of the said doctor's great regard for the salvation of their souls and is over and above other benefits which he most cheerfully obtained for the encouragement of the Mohican Indians. So, Sergeant died suddenly of a nervous fever in 1749 at the age of 39. But the Bible had been a sacred trust to the Mohican people, and at some point they even built, built a special wooden chest for it. And when they were forced to move from Stockbridge to New York in 1784, the Bible went before them. And then again in the mid-1820s, when they were relocated once more, this time to Wisconsin, where they are now, uh, for them, it was like an Ark of the Covenant. Mm. It went before them, just like the Ark went before the Jews. It was a rallying point of faith for the Mohican people. But the Bible was kept at the John Sargent Memorial Church on the reservation. And then in the 1920s, the church began to falter, and one of the tribal members, Jameson Quinney, took the Bible to his home for safekeeping. Well, Jameson died in March 1929, and at some point, when Jameson's wife, Ellen, was away, the minister, Frederick Westfall, who was not Mohican, uh, entered the Quinney home and took the Bible under his care. Well, Pastor Westfall had been contacted by Mabel Choate from Stockbridge, Massachusetts, 
And Mabel's father was uh, Joseph Hodges Chode, a very wealthy New York lawyer. And Mabel had inherited the family's 44-room cottage in Stockbridge, which is named Nelmkeg. It's still open today for uh, viewing. It's uh, under the trustees in Stockbridge. And so uh, Mabel purchased the original home of John Sargent and had it moved to the main street of Stockbridge. Um, and this was with the thoughts of setting it up as a museum, museum to the Mohicans, and she called Sargent's home Mission House, and it's there, it's on the main street of Stockbridge today, it's still open for visiting. So Mabel had contacted Westfall and asked if there were any Mohican artifacts that she might procure for the museum, but whatever Westfall's motivation, he sold the Bible to her for a thousand dollars, and the John Sargent Memorial Church ultimately did close in 1937, and eventually all those who knew of the Bible had passed away, and so it was lost in obscurity. Well, Mabel turned over Mission House and all its contents and her home, Naumkeg, to the Trustee of Reservations, and they are a non-profit organization which is committed to preserving properties of historical significance in Massachusetts. And so the Bible remained in a glass case on public display in Stockbridge until there was a chance visit by a tribal member, uh, James Davids, from the reservation in Wisconsin in 1951. And he reported seeing the Bible, um, it was totally shocked. He saw the inscription in it that it was to the Mohican people. And so he reported back to the tribal elders when he returned to the reservation. And so an earnest attempt was began to uh, repatriate the Bible to the tribe. But for years, correspondence was sent to the trustees. It was largely ignored. But then finally, in uh, April 19th of 1990, with the threat of uh, legal action, the trustees agreed, okay, we'll return this Bible to the tribe. So in March of 1991, 10 of the tribal members traveled to Stockbridge uh, to take possession of their beloved Bible. And today it is housed at the uh, Arvidy Miller Memorial Museum Library on the reservation. And when I was doing my uh, research for my doctorate, uh, I spent several days on the reservation and had opportunity to, uh, to see it um, and actually have a look through it. It's an absolutely beautiful piece of history, Americana history. That's wonderful, brother. That's a, that's a great, great story. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Jonathan Edwards and the influence he still has on evangelicalism today? I know that's a, a really big question. <laughs> Well, let me give you a quick biography of, of Edwards. There's so much in his life to cover. Uh, he was born in East Windsor, Connecticut in, in 1703. Uh, his father, Timothy Edwards, was a minister. Uh, his mother was Esther Stoddard. Her father was Solomon Stoddard, the minister of the church in Northampton, Massachusetts. Well, Stoddard was a formidable and influential man, and some dubbed him the Pope of the Connecticut Valley. Now, I'm not sure if they ever said that to his face, but definitely behind his back, that was his moniker. Well, Timothy had 11 children, and Jonathan was the only boy. And all of Timothy's children were over six feet tall, and the local people would jest about uh, Timothy's 60 feet of daughters. Uh, well, Timothy educated all of his children, and even the daughters were very, very well-versed in scripture and languages. And uh, by uh, 12 years old, 
Jonathan had grasped Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. So he attended Yale at the age of 13 in 1716 and graduated first in his class with a BA in 1720 and then continued his studies and completed a master's in 1722. Hmm. Subsequent to that, he held a couple of small charges in New York and in Bolton, Connecticut from 1722 to 1724. And then he returned to Yale as a tutor in 1724 for a couple of years. And in August of 1726, he joined with his aging grandfather as an assistant uh, at the church in Northampton. He was ordained uh, February the 15th, 1727, at the age of 23, and Stoddard at this time was 84. Mm. Well, Stoddard died two years later in, seven, or in 1729, and Edwards succeeded him in the pulpit at Northampton. Very, very big shoes to follow. Like I said, his, his grandfather was a very formidable person and wielded a lot of influence. Well, there have been a couple of revivals in the Connecticut Valley during this time, and then specifically during the time of George Whitfield preaching in the early 1740s, 1741, 1742, there was a great outpouring of the Spirit in the whole Connecticut Valley. But Edwards wrestled with some issues with practices that his grandfather had instituted in the church. Stoddard believed that the Lord's Supper was a saving ordinance because that's how he had come to faith, through taking the Lord's Supper, realized that the death of Christ was for him. And so he thought, okay, we need to open the table to anybody and everybody because it's a saving ordinance. Um, well, Edwards felt that communion was for professed believers only, so he couldn't come to grips with uh, opening the table to anybody. And uh, so additionally, Stoddard had instituted something called the Halfway Covenant, whereby the children of baptized but unconverted members were allowed to be baptized and entered into church membership. So Edwards really struggled with these practices until finally, uh, in December of 1748, he said, enough is enough. So he announced that from that point forward, only professing believers would be allowed to partake of the Lord's Supper. Well, this caused a great uproar in the church. Um, it was totally divided, and there was all sorts of letters going back and forth. And then ultimately, a second issue rose, and that was related to what was called the Bad Book, or the, the Young Folks Bible, as it was dubbed. It was a manual for midwives. And some of the young boys, well, boys in their 20s, they were young men, uh, had gotten a hold of this book. And so they were taunting the young girls about it, being really rude and vulgar about it. And so from the pulpit, Edwards called for an inquiry, and he named men that he wanted to assemble for this inquiry. But his error in judgment was that during the pronouncement, he didn't differentiate witnesses from accused. And so when people left the church that day, they were really up in arms. Because of his doctrinal pronouncement, um, based on what Stoddard had done, and his handling of the bad book affair, to make the story short, they dismissed him as their pastor. Uh, out of 230 people, only 23 voted in favor of him staying. Um, and it was really all because of Stoddard's legacy living on among the people. So he went to Stockbridge, as I mentioned, in uh, 1751 to 1758. Uh, in 1758, he was called to become the second president of Princeton to succeed his son-in-law, Aaron Burr Sr., who had died. Uh, Edwards arrived in Princeton in February, early February of 1758, and there was a small 
smallpox epidemic, and inoculations were very prominent. Well, Edwards was a strong believer in science and had written quite a bit on science himself. And so he was inoculated, and he contracted the virus, and he died in March. So he was there only a couple of months before he succumbed to the smallpox. Very, very uh, fitting words. He was lying on his deathbed, barely able to whisper, and some people surrounded his bed, and they were lamenting, what are we going to do now when Edwards died? And the last words he spoke were, trust God, and all will be well. So uh, when his daughter, Esther Burr, wrote to her mother to inform her that, uh, that Edward had passed away, Sarah, Edward's wife, responded, oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. Sarah herself was such a pious and godly woman, and if you read anything on the biography of Edwards, you'll see just how deeply, deeply pious she was in spiritual. Well, uh, two weeks after Edward's death, his daughter Esther Burr contracted a fever and died. And then uh, his wife Sarah came to Princeton to care for her orphan grandchildren, one of whom was Aaron Burr Jr., who would go on to become the, the president and vice president of the United States. Um, however, she fell ill and died in October of 1758. Well, previously, Edward's father, Timothy, had died in January of 1758, at the age of 88. So the year 1758 was really a difficult one for the Edwards family all around. They lost so many members of that very, very godly family. And, and as for Edward's influence today, we really need to look back at a statement made by Edward Ezra Stiles. Um, he was a contemporary of Edwards, who uh, was the seventh president of Yale. This is what he said. He said, within 30 years of Edward's death, his works would pass into obscurity and be all but forgotten. And then he stated, when posterity occasionally comes across them in the rubbish of libraries, the rare characters who may read and be pleased with them will be looked upon as singular and whimsical. How wrong he was, right? Because <laughs> Edwards is one of the most studied theologians today. And when I was doing my doctoral work uh, in December, I got the, uh, the issue of the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society, and full 25% of the articles in that journal were on Edwards and his spirituality. So Edwards' writings are, are timeless and certainly current for today. Yeah, uh, I, I have always, that's a really good answer. I've always just been struck by his, his brilliance. You know, you can't read Edwards without just coming away at, at how brilliant he was, but not only brilliant, but he but he used his brilliance in service of the people of God. And I, I think, you know, even the most intelligent people, they like the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, you know, wrote 13 of the letters that we have in the New Testament. You know, he was, he probably had something to the equivalent today. Uh, a lot of people think two PhDs. You know, and Edwards certainly, I'm not saying that Edwards was like the Apostle Paul, but they're both very brilliant men, and uh, they use that in, in service to Christ. And I, I'm always, it's always interesting, you know, um, people today say uh, Christians aren't intellectual, but we have an incredibly rich history, and Edwards is intellectual history, and Edwards is certainly at the top of that, or one at the very, probably at the very top of that. And uh, so, yeah, I just think that's really 
really interesting what you said. So I definitely, definitely agree. He he's had a tremendous impact on on the church. Um, so can you uh, tell us a bit about some of the themes of the Edwards preaching to the Mohican Indians? Well, when he came to the Mohicans, they had had a minister sergeant had been with them for fifteen years. So the gospel was not something new to them. However, Edwards, if you read, as you were mentioning, any of his works, uh, he was a master of rhetoric. He could paint word pictures that would take you right into where he was in the sermon. He was not a George Whitfield. He was not a person who would use a lot of uh, theatrics in his preaching or anything. Uh, but he was a master wordsmith. So when he spoke, he gripped people's attention. The case in point is the uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God, uh, which is, I've talked to non-Christian people, uh, and I would say, this is the work I'm doing, it's on Jonathan Edwards, and they go, oh yeah, I remember when English class in uh, in the U.S., we had to study sinners in the hands of an angry God, you know, the spider over the fire. Everybody knows about Jonathan Edwards' sermon, sinners in the hands of an angry God. They missed the point of that sermon, of course, which is the brevity of life and the, uh, the fact of God's grace. God's grace is a holding you right now and at all points in your life and you have no idea how much time so they missed the point but that's definitely his his Indian sermons when he got there he took them right back to the very beginning he recognized the Indians were very much in tune with nature they knew about the great good spirit as they called him and they had called an English missionary to come to them because they recognized that the English were blessed by the great good spirit and they wanted to know more about him. And so they actually requested a minister to come to them. So Edwards goes right back to the beginning and uses a lot of metaphors from nature, things that the Indians would identify with. But he takes them to the book of Acts and the story of Peter and Cornelius. Peter going to the Gentiles, uh, the first call to a Jew going to the Gentile and taking the gospel to them. And he says that is the same as us. Peter went to the Gentiles, and then ultimately the gospel came across to England, and now we from England have come to America, and it is our obligation to share this good news, this gospel with you. And he very emphatically states to the Indians, we are no different from you. We are all sinners under God, and the only difference is that we received the truth before you did, and now it's our obligation to share that truth with you. His style was very narrative. He would begin with a narrative and then go into the exposition of the passage of Scripture. As his, the time moved on and we get into the mid-1750s, the French and Indian War, at the beginning, Edwards would write out his sermons in full. Uh, I just I was in awe to go to the Beinecke Rare Manuscript Museum at Yale and actually handle the sermons that I um, did the dissertation on and to see his handwriting and to realize I was holding this piece of history that had been preached to these people. And so he meticulously wrote out his sermons at the beginning. But when we get to the middle of his tenure in the 1740s and 50s, um, it became very much truncated. He just put quick thoughts on the paper, his ideas, and then he would preach pretty much extemporaneously from those quick point forms. 
He never read his notes. He kept meticulous notes, took them to the pulpit with him, but there's no evidence that he ever read from them. He had the sermon completely committed to memory. But in the mid middle of his tenure, they become very clipped, and his themes become different. He's now telling them about the imminent threat of death, and that some of them may be killed in this war that was going on around them. Indeed, there had been a massacre in the Stockbridge area. He had called for protection from the military. They came and built a stockade around his house. So he was housing some of the Mohicans in his home, along with soldiers, billeting soldiers and their horses, and at one point was serving 800 meals. And uh, so Edwards had the Indians and the soldiers. It's very difficult to try to uh, prepare sermons under a situation like that. So it's not surprising that his sermons were very truncated and point form only. Uh, so he spoke to them again about the brevity of life, the impending threat of death, and that they need not fear death. They are in God's care. If they are spiritually reborn, there is no reason to fear death. And uh, so then from there, as he gets toward the end, so I took two sermons from the beginning of his time, two from the French and Indian Wars, and then the last two farewell sermons he preached in 1758. Uh, so those two farewell sermons, the first one he preached, he reminded them about God's gift of the ministers that have come to minister to them and how committed they were to the Indians' well-being, physical and spiritual. And he said, never forget those who have come to minister to you. And he says, thank God that you heard this sermon today. Uh, then as he got toward the end, this is his very last sermon to them, it was three main points. Watch, pray, always. And he returned to those themes throughout that sermon. Watch, pray, always. During his whole tenure with them from 1751 to 1758, he kept coming back to similar themes. He would remind them to stay away and give up the sins of lying, cheating, and drunkenness. Uh, as history indicates, when the Dutch and English fur traders came, the first thing they did was ply the uh, Indians with alcohol because it made trading with them much easier. They could take advantage of them uh, by getting them drunk. And many of the transactions were in alcohol. Uh, I mean, uh, people that know about physiology will tell you it's established that uh, Indian heredity, Indians' genetics, they cannot metabolize alcohol the way most people can. It really affects them. Uh, very deeply. And so the uh, fur traders took that to their advantage. And Edwards kept coming back to that, you know, lying, cheating, and drunkenness. And uh, so the very last thing in his Watch, Pray, Always sermon, he reminds them of that, you know, please stay away from these vices. And uh, so the indication is that they did. If you uh, get into my book, the one of the chiefs, Hendrik Apalma, uh, pleaded with the authorities to turn off the tap, you know, keep them from trading alcohol to our people. And uh, so they recognized the detrimental effects that it had on his people as well. So that's kind of a synopsis of uh, his style over the, the seven years that he was with them. Very good, brother. Good answer. Uh, where, where can people go to find out more about your work online um, or on social media or otherwise, brother? Yeah, um, the best place to go is the publisher. It's H and E Hesed and Emmett Publishing.com. So just H and E Publishing.com. Uh, there's also another podcast that I did 
studied with him prior to the book being released. So the Jonathan Edwards book is there, as well as a pre-sale of the Mayflower book that we're working on. And uh, so they can get more information there. If they have any questions, uh, they want to contact me, they can do that through the publisher as well. I'd be happy to answer any questions. Very good, brother. Well, just as we wrap up this conversation, uh, can you give our listeners a few takeaways? Sure. Uh, before I do, if I'd like to give you a little anecdote. And this shows how God can get involved in the most mysterious ways when you least expect it. We were in the archives in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. Uh, my wife tags along with me. I dragged her through cemeteries looking at headstones, trying to find various people. So when I'm looking through documents, she is also looking through documents on my behalf. Well, my wife has a really noble heritage. Uh, her grandfather, 10 generations ago, was one of those Dutch fur traders. He came to Albany, New York in 1651. Uh, his name was Tunis Slingerland. Now, in the family history, we knew that Tunis had, in quotes, purchased 10,000 acres of property, and all that was written in the family heritage was from the Wolf Bear and Turtle clan. We have no idea what um, what tribe it was. Well, the Mohican people were actually in the Albany area before they moved down to Stockbridge, and it turns out that Tunis purchased his property from the Mohican Indians. So my wife came across her ancestral grandfather's name in one of these documents, like, oh my goodness, here, my grandfather, you know, the original ancestor that came from Holland. And so then another thing that happened is when we, uh, I was chronicling the spirituality of the Mohicans right from the beginning through their various moves up to the modern day, how many churches there are now that are serving the, uh, the tribe in uh, Wisconsin. And as I got to the year in mid-1800s, I come across this man, Jeremiah Slingerland, my wife's maiden name. Well, Jeremiah, as it turns out, is full-blood Mohican Indian. Uh, not uncommon for them to take English and uh, Dutch names, so that wasn't a big surprise. The big surprise was that Jeremiah married a white woman. Her name was Sarah Seymour. Well, my wife's grandfather and great-grandfather's middle name is Seymour, and her great-grandfather was an itinerant Methodist minister in Niagara. Uh, her family split during the Revolutionary War. Some were loyal to the British Crown and came over at Niagara, and the rest stayed in the uh, Albany, New York area. And uh, so here we have this family connection of my wife's that we had no idea about, totally independent of my research. So we have uh, some more fun to uh, to uh, work on there to see if we can find a connection of her to the Mohican tribe. But, and as for takeaways, um, I guess I would leave you with this. Uh, modern evangelicals need to embrace their roots of historical spirituality. Uh, the, the world is in a very severe downward spiral, um, spiritually and physically, and, and the church is under serious attack from those who would attempt to suppress and silence the truth of Scripture. We're seeing that over and over. Uh, and so we need to emulate some of the great heroes of the faith like Edwards, who was so deeply pious and committed to the glory of God. And, and so, Dave, we need to pray seriously for a revival of the truth and pray that it would start within the church, that the church would be motivated by the Spirit of God and get out there and, uh, and change the world around us. Well said, brother. I, I couldn't say it any better myself, but amen. Well, Roy, I, I very much appreciate the time that you've given to me today and uh, the great work that you've done in this book and on this on this show today. So may the Lord richly bless you. Thank you for having me, Dave. Lord bless you also. Thank you, brother. 
Thank you for listening to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.